In Numbers 13 and 14, you have the events that are uh, kind of, that occur generally 40-ish years before uh, what we have here in Joshua. And the story goes like this. Uh, in Exodus, we, we read about Moses leading Israel uh, out of slavery, really God redeeming them, and Moses leading out of slavery in Egypt. And he leads them um, through the Red Sea and then into the wilderness, what is called the wilderness wandering, uh, right uh, before or just south of the promised land in Canaan. And on the edge of the promised land, uh, as they're about to enter, by God's command, they send in 12 spies to spy out the land and to see what it is like. And 10 of those spies are there for about 40 days, I believe. 10 of those spies come back with a different report than the other two spies who come back. The 10 spies have what probably can be characterized as a faithless report, and two have a report that's pretty faithful. The 10 are like, it's too scary, these people are big, it's a huge land, we shouldn't do this. Uh, even though God promised it to us and promised it to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and you, Moses, and everyone else, we can't do it. The two spies are like, dude, it's ours, let's take it now, let's go. And so Israel listens to the faithless report, measuring what we should do or they should do based on what they see with their own eyes, and they basically rebel against what God's command was to do, which was to enter the promised land. And so they, get so they go so far into believing the faithless report, they actually begin to doubt, get fearful, and they even get angry with the leaders and get to the point where they're like, let's choose new leaders to take us back to Egypt because this has been a waste of time. And so they actually pick up stones to, I guess, implied stone the leaders, and the only thing that seems to stop them is the glory of God showing up and goes, oh, they're like, guess we'll put those rocks down. So what happens is God comes and speaks to Moses at the tabernacle, having seen the rebellion. Joshua and Caleb, the two spies who had the faithful report, are like pleading with them not to rebel, but they do. And God says this, after seeing all this, uh, I believe it's in Numbers 14, how long will these people despise me? So he begins to sound like an exasperated parent, really. How long will they not believe me in spite of these signs that I have done among them? So he's done all kinds of miracles. He's provided for them food from heaven, water from rock, all kinds. He goes on to say, none, as a result, none of them who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have put me to the test these ten times, probably more than ten times, but it's a good number, and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to their fathers. None of them are going in. That's it. It's done. And so Israel then remains wandering in the wilderness for approximately 40 years until everyone over the age of 21 dies by God's command. Moses himself, after 40 years, gets taken to the edge of the promised land. He goes, look, Moses, get to see it. And he's like, Sweet. He's like, but you're not going. And he's dead. Okay? So Joshua then is chosen. He had been appointed earlier to succeed Moses and lead this new generation, hopefully a faithful generation, who had come from faithless fathers and mothers, into the promised land. And this is where the book of Joshua pretty much begins, with the death of Moses and Joshua's new leadership. And so as he assumes leadership, God tells him, several times, to be strong and courageous. And 
It doesn't necessarily mean, although this would be required, to just, you know, be tough and, you know, be brave. Uh, it's more of be strong and courageous to do exactly what I tell you to do, to follow my word. And the implication is it's going to be very tempting for him to not follow God's word because God's going to ask him to do some strange things, some um, things that seem unreasonable to uh, what we might measure with our own eyes. But he says, don't turn to the right, don't turn to the left, walk exactly as I tell you to walk, follow and listen to my wisdom and not yours, fear me and don't fear anything else. And Joshua does pretty well as a leader for a while. Rivers are divided, fortresses fall, and God proves himself to be uh, a faithful commander, and Joshua proves himself to be a faithful uh, general uh, leading soldiers. Now, ironically, and this may be uh, a common experience, may not be, but it seems when God gives success like he gave Joshua or he gives us, success can often cause us to forget about our incompetence apart from him. Uh, and we, we do great victories or have incredible uh, successes, and, and suddenly we feel pretty good about ourselves, and we become, begin to depend maybe less on God. And this happens to Israel, who appears to not really pray too much as they attack the next city, which is called Ai. And in chapter 7, Israel experiences its first defeat. Now, God had said, you won't be defeated. He basically told Joshua, You're, you follow me, you'll have success no matter where you go, no matter who you face, and suddenly they don't have success. And they don't have success particularly because of one man's sin who had brought into the camp named Achan. And Joshua doesn't know this quite yet, so he's freaking out because he just saw his people killed. They had never been killed before uh, in battle. And so he's, he's freaking out. He tears his clothes. He's on his face. He's praying to God, pleading with him uh, a full day. Why? Why did this happen? What is going on? Why have you brought us out here to die? And... God pretty much says, um, very graciously, get off your face, and there's sin in the camp, take care of it. And as a good leader, I believe, does, he does. He listens, and he confronts the sin without excusing it. He purges the sin out that God identifies. He doesn't become some sin hunter. He just like, okay, where is it? God tells him, purges the sin, and suddenly... The purity of the people make them strong. Because purity always precedes strength. And they attack Ai again. This time, being very careful to inquire to the Lord, the entire time, and God, instead of doing like, you know, march around and blow trumpets like he did at Jericho, he gives them a pretty clever battle plan. But he follows exactly what God, Joshua follows exactly what God tells him to do all the way, and they get victory over not only Ai, but the city next door, which was even greater than Ai, Bethel, who tries to help them. So he gets two major victories. And so after this great victory, Joshua, being sure to follow exactly what God has said, Moses had commanded back in Deuteronomy 27, said, when you come into the land and possess the land, I want you to go to a city called Shechem between these two mountains, and I want you to have basically a big old worship service and, and read God's law. And so he does. And that's where Joshua 8 ends, where you have Israel divided basically over two mountains. And in Joshua 8, it says this, 
He copies the whole Word of God, and then he reads it. It says, there was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. So he reads the whole law, all the blessings, all the cursings, all the promises of God, all the warnings of God. And after they read each of these, with one voice, all the people say, Amen to the blessings, Amen to the cursings, which we're typically a little more hesitant to say Amen to. But they affirm we are committed to living and and depending upon God's promises and heeding His warnings, and they're amen, it's all public, loud, and this is where chapter 9 takes off. So chapter 9, verse 1 says this, right after this big public worship service. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. So it didn't take long for the word to get out about what Israel had done to Ai and to Bethel, and every Canaanite in the land is twittering about what happened down at the gorge at Shechem, this huge demonstration declaring all God's word. And so reports start going out about their accomplishments, about what they're going to do. But the reaction's a little bit different. This has happened before. Reports have gone out, people have twittered, all those things. And when they went across the Jordan, same thing happened. All the kings heard about what they'd done, divided the Jordan, and came through. And at that time, the hearts melted in the land. And you see that particularly in Jericho. But this time, it's a little bit different. These guys are incited by the news, and these five kings kind of put their forces together, and it seems like they are probably, perhaps, convinced by the failure they did see or heard about at Ai that these people and their God can be conquered if done the right way. And as I read that, I began to see, you know, how much do we actually think about our impact or the impact of of my sin, of our sin, on the world, maybe even indirectly. And what I mean is, what might have happened, do you think, if Achan hadn't sinned? The reaction to other people may have been much different. If they hadn't been defeated at AI, maybe their hearts would have continued to melt because, man, this God really is God. But instead, have we ever considered how our faithfulness or lack thereof might actually influence other men's hearts to soften or harden toward God or toward His people. I mean, one of the greatest uh, or most common declarations uh, about Christians is that they're hypocrites. I wonder why they think that. And it could be because publicly you see a lot of guys falling flat on their face and then dealing with their fall very poorly, and they're called hypocritical. And how much is... Our sin, my sin, actually creating that perception and making them faithless, so to speak, in, in God or the church or whoever. So these first two verses begin, kind of give the background for the next four chapters, for 9, 10, 11, 12. Because what you see is Joshua no longer kind of saying, I'm going to battle with this city. and battle. All the cities start coming towards him, and it's really more of a defensive posture. The battles are picked for him. And so before he meets 
these kings, though, there's one city that decides to attack Jericho with a little more, uh, a different tact, some deceptive diplomacy. And so that's when we have verse 3. It says this, But, contrasting to the other kings, when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins worn out and torn and mended with worn-out patched sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes. And all the provisions were dry and crumbly, and they went in the camp at Gilgal, and Gilgal is where they all congregate and where the central operations are for Joshua, and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country. So now make a covenant with us, promise with us, a relationship with us, a treaty with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Now, the narrator here calls them the Hivites. They never self-identified themselves as the Hivites, so they're speaking in the, like, we know that they were Hivites now, looking back. The Hivites were one of the people that God said, wipe out. So the Hivites, perhaps they say, you live among us, and how can we make a covenant with you? And they said to Joshua, we are your servants. And Joshua said to them, who are you? Where do you come from? Now, the Gibeonite elders wisely, and I say wisely, take a different approach because, I mean, the narrator says they're cunning. He doesn't fault them for being cunning. He commends them a little bit, similar to maybe what Rahab's faith was like. A little bit different, obviously, but these men were so crafty, though. I mean, they were crafty crafters. They were crafty, and we are so, maybe you're not, I was so tempted, and am so tempted to excuse Israel's failure here. To give them a pass because of the impossibly difficult situation they're put in. And I'm pretty sure I want to give them a pass because I want one. Okay? Maybe you're not the same, but it's like, man, that is a tough situation. When, when I screw up, when I sin, when I make a bad choice, I, dare I say we, are very tempted to blame shift. To blame something. To cause me to do something bad, right? I mean, that's a... We shouldn't be surprised if we get to that place because that's exactly what Adam and Eve did. It's not like when God came in and said, what did you do? He didn't go, well, here's what I did. He's like, boom, the woman that you gave me. And, and Eve's like, Satan, who you didn't stop. I mean, like, that's what happens. We begin to blame shift and point fingers. And so when I read a passage like this, I can feel myself wanting to defend Israel. Wanting to defend Joshua. I mean, God, if he hadn't allowed this situation, if he had stopped them from deceiving, because he could have, he could have, or, you know, they would have been faithful if he'd done those things. Or if that girl hadn't worn that, I probably wouldn't have lusted. Oh, I'm sure you never said that, fellas. Or, you know, if. If that beer wasn't there, hadn't been offered to me, I wouldn't have had seven of them. It started with the one, right? Or if that person hadn't said those things, then I wouldn't have said what I said or done what I'd done. If it wasn't so easy to take the money, if the tree hadn't have been there in the garden, 
That's where it's going. If the serpent wasn't allowed to come in and tempt them, I mean, if God had stepped in, that's where it's going. The ultimate blame shift. God is where it ends up. So I'll just say it as gently as I can. You're responsible for your sin. I'm responsible for my sin. We are responsible for our sin. You can't blame anyone, though you are going to be very tempted to do that as an excuse or an explanation or justification of why you did what you did. Now, what makes it so hard for this is that you see Israel and you see these guys, they want to obey. I mean, it seems like they do. They're, they're trying. And even though these guys say, we come from a distant country, they're like, mm, I don't know. And the reason why they're, they're so like, maybe you're close by, because God had said, they know their Bibles. God had said back in Deuteronomy 20, there are rules about making treaties with people. And he said that, you know what? You can make treaties. You can make peace, treaties with peaceful cities outside the promised land. Go ahead and make all the covenants you want. But anyone that's inside this promised land, uh-uh. Now Gibeon, put the map up there. That's where Gibeon is. Okay? So... You can see where Bethel and Ai is just to the uh, east of that. And Gilgal is probably just between, I believe, Jericho and Bethel there. Okay, so it's like they're neighbors. So they're worried, whoops, that these guys are close by and should be. He said, don't make any treaties. You will become idolatrous if you do just like them and you'll bring wrath upon yourself. So he said, you are to kill anyone in the promised land. Make trees outside all you want. And so its inhabitants, as he said, are Hivites, a people specifically condemned by God. And so, interestingly enough, though these, in Joshua 10, you'll see next week, the Gibeonites are described as mighty warriors, a royal city more powerful than Ai or Bethel. These guys are so filled with fear of what they've seen and heard that they turn in their, their military awards for Academy Awards. And they get, they're good. These guys are convincing, and they are willing to risk it all. Because if they're caught, they go into the, the heart, you know, the, the den of lions, if you will. They go into the heart. If they're caught, they're killed instantly. So they are risking and, and all these things for this incredibly complex lie and I can't help but be blown away by how much energy, time, and effort a lot of people will put into a lie that, quite frankly, Christians won't nearly do for the truth. But they do, and Joshua is suspicious, and he says, who are you? Where do you come from? He doesn't trust them, and here's what they say in their little charade. Verse 9 says, they said to him, well, second time, from a very distant country, your servants have come. Because of the name of the Lord your God, for we have heard of the report of him, and all that he did in Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon the king of Heshbon, and to Og the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants, when we heard these things, of our country said to us, Take provisions in your hand for the journey, and go to meet them, and say to them, We are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here's our bread. 
It's still warm. When we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you, but now, behold, it's dry and crumbly. And these wineskins, well, they were new when we filled them. Behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from a very long journey. I mean, how can these guys even keep a straight face? Probably because they're scared to death, but they do. And it's interesting that the Gibeonites, okay, those who are not God's people know the Word of God pretty well. They know it enough that they know that they're not permitted to make treaties inside the land. And so they're like, oh, we're, we're from a considerable distance. And even more so, they are so clever, they don't mention the defeats of Ai and Jericho because they would have heard about those. They're like, oh, we heard about what happened on the other side of the Jordan in Egypt. And we heard about when you defeated those kings on the other side of the river. That was amazing. We heard about that a long time ago. Oh, you defeated Ai? Wow, we didn't know that. Well, they knew that. That's what exactly they had heard. And so they give them evidence. They give them all kinds of things. They put intentional preparation in with their lie, and it plays on the eyes and the ears of the Israelites who are listening. And as many liars do, and I say that because I'm beginning to see that the false teachers are often like this, they woo with a lot of flattery. And a lot of disarming words. You ever notice the wolf in like different cartoons is always like, hey, come on over here. You know, it's always like flattery, right? He's like, oh, we're your servants. You guys are so strong and amazing. We're just, see, we just want to be friends with you. We just want to know that we like can, you know, be buddies. They bite it. They bite. And here's, I think, what the heart of it is for me. As we make decisions, we're going to make a lot of decisions in our life. And we have to understand that the wrong decision can often look very right. And I, I know that's like, well, duh. It's like, I know, but we keep making wrong decisions. At least I do, okay? So the wrong decisions can often look very right. And the wrong decision can often, to use a Christmas analogy, can often be packaged in the best packaging, right, with the bow. But it can often be the wrong decision. I, you guys know Brent at the Seed Church. Um, he's a great pastor friend of mine, and he was talking about a white elephant gift he gave. Um, there's a long story to it, but the bottom line is um, he had uh, gerbils that produced lots of gerbils, right? <laughs> it's like, what do you do with gerbils? And I'm like, I'll tell you what to do with them. But he, you know, he's like, I don't know what to do with these gerbils, so he had a white elephant party. He's like... So it's like a box. He put like five gerbils in this box, right? Wrapped it up, poked some air holes in it. But then he put some, I can't remember what it was, some awesome present attached to it with a big bow. So people saw that and went, yeah, you know? And so he's like, before they started, he said, all right, here are the rules. Whatever you get, you keep, no matter what. That's white elephant rules. First gift taken. Oh, you know, and someone takes it, and they open it up, and there's like, Oh my gosh. And it was four or five gerbils. And they took him. He delivered it like the next morning with a cage on their doorstep with food and walked away. Okay? Looked great. Wrong choice. Wrong choice. Okay? We have to realize, and I, I hope we do, but we have to realize that the right decision isn't the one that often looks best, it isn't the one that's often easiest or even most obvious. 
And we like to use, I say we, Christians like to use the open door phrase a lot. Well, the door was open. Open door doesn't mean you need to necessarily walk through it. It doesn't make, just because it opened doesn't make it the right door. So we have to be careful just because, like, well, yeah, let's, it works. Let's do it. It might actually be the wrong decision. The right decision is sometimes the hardest and the ugliest and least obvious one. And I, I think of in Matthew 16 when, when Peter and Jesus are talking, and Jesus is like, let me tell you what's going to happen. Um, I'm going to success, and how this story all ends, I'm actually going to be killed. And Peter's like, what? Get over here. What are you talking about? And he rebukes him. Because that's not a good end of the story, but it was the right end of the story. It was the way it was going to go, and it was the ugliest, most painful, most terrible thing Peter could imagine. But it's right, and Jesus knew it. The right decision can often, as I said, look and feel, if we just measure with our eyes and our ears, like the wrong one. The right decision can often come in that plain paper sack that's like, you know, smelly and dripping with some kind of weird goo in it. You're like, dude, you actually need to take that one. That's the right decision. Not always, not always, but the right decision can often be the most uncomfortable and inconvenient one. And it may require the most sacrifice. It may be the most unpopular. It may honestly make the least amount of sense and require the most amount of patience to produce a result. The thing to remember is that decisions matter. Decisions matter like chess. I'm teaching my son how to play chess. He's nine, so I'm whooping up on him like a madman, but he's getting good. But it's a game that teaches consequences. That's what it is. You make a decision, okay. You sure you want to go there? He's like, okay. You know, and it's like everything gets destroyed. Checkmate. Because it's a game that teaches consequences. And I, I think of uh, Moses when uh, he was told to go before Pharaoh. Okay? He's 80 years old. Spent 40 years in Egypt and then 40 years shepherding. He's like, dude, my life is great. I'm like an ex-con back there. God's like, yeah, I need you to go back there before the greatest uh, leader of the greatest nation in the world and tell him to let all the slaves go. And Moses is like, uh, I don't want to have a perfect life, and I can't even talk, and no one's going to listen to me, and I'm like wanted for murder? I mean, seriously. And he's like, mm-hmm, go. Didn't make any sense, but it was. It looked all wrong, but it was the right decision. It's not that we should fear making decisions, but we need to recognize that sometimes the right decision and the wrong decision can even look exactly correct, equally correct. So we simply cannot depend wholly on our own wisdom to figure it out. We have to begin there. And the story here shifts from the Gibeonites to you know, their deception, all these things, to Israel's failure. Here's what it says, the meat of it in verse 14 and 15. It says, So the men took some of their provisions but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live, and the leaders of the congregation swore to them. And so Joshua and the elders asked all the right questions, which you should do. Made their pros and cons list. They did their CSI investigation. You know, they examined all the sandals, like, eh, okay, you got patches there. You look at the wineskins. They made Shmuel eat some of the bread. And like, dude, 
he's getting sick because it's moldy. So they know it's old, they do their test, and yet they still make the wrong decision. And there are, sometimes we just make wrong decisions and we give God the spiritual middle finger and we just go, forget it, I'm doing what I want. But, I think more often, we make more subtle and equally destructive decisions because we simply put too much trust in our own brains and hearts and guts and emotions. Now, this isn't about asking the wrong questions. It's about asking the wrong person. Now, Joshua asked, like I said, the right questions, but he was deceived because he just didn't ask counsel from the Lord. He didn't pray. And the question that I have honestly beat myself up with all week is that, do I really ask God for wisdom in my decisions, big and small? Is it that important and valuable to me to know what he would have me do? Because I know the sin in me can make Bad things look good and good things look bad. But the temptation begins with believing that we are wise, that sin really hasn't affected my mind or emotions like I think it is or did, that my intellect is actually something that is trustworthy. So our problem isn't that we don't think, it's that we don't pray. And and maybe we... Pray when major things come, you know, tragedies and just really hard decisions like, should I take this major job? Or when the proverbial poop hits the fan, and you're like, oh, I better pray now. This is crazy. I mean, that, those types of things, it's almost like, okay, I'm going to pray because I don't know what else to do. But I just don't know if we ask God's wisdom that often because I just don't think we need, we don't think we need it. And it's either not important enough or we already assume we know what he would do or we know exactly what his answer is and don't like it, or we don't want to wait for an answer, or I think this is most common, and I say this because this is most common for me. I don't pray as I ought because I really don't believe prayer works. If I really believe prayer works, I would pray constantly. And I say that, that the sin in me tempts me to believe it doesn't work. It does. But without question, that is the heart of it. I actually don't think, if we really believe, pray, we would be like, dude, I'm praying for that right now. I've started to do that because I used to say a lot because it's very common, like, well, I'll pray for that. I'll pray for you. I'll pray for you. you know? So now when like, I get an email or someone asks me to pray, I pray right there or I email them a prayer. So I'm praying for you right now and I actually am because I'll forget and I won't. The implication seems to be here for Joshua that if he had asked, God would have spoken. God's direction was available and he ignored it. And let's commit for 2011 not to use the God hasn't spoken statement to actually avoid making a decision. That's the other extreme. There's always a ditch on each side of the road, right? Well, God hasn't spoken yet, so I'm not sure. We don't want to go there I believe, and I believe the Bible says, that God speaks way more than He is silent. God speaks way more than He is silent. And I guarantee that most of our bad decision making is not rooted in knowing or spending too much time praying or too much time knowing God's Word. I'm pretty certain that's something I can confidently say. Well, I just didn't read the Bible enough, or I would have made that. No, 
Typically, it's the opposite. So by God's grace, though, it takes these guys three days to realize they're uh-oh, right? And I say by God's grace because sometimes God will allow that to go three years before you go, oh, my goodness, I made a really bad decision. So three days, here's what it says. At the end of three days, in verse 16, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. The people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. And now their cities were Gibeon, Shapira, Beeroth, and Kiriath-Jerim. Say them really fast and you'll maybe say them right. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. And then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. But all the leaders said to all the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leaders said to them, Let them live. And so they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said of them. So, they quickly discover that they're neighbors. They only live three days away. They go over there. They want to kill them. And though the leaders screwed up, they refuse to break their oath. And the people are ticked. They are ticked. Like, are you kidding me? So let me just give you a really simple truth that you may have forgotten that really helps me, though. Leaders make mistakes. Pastors make mistakes. Fathers make mistakes. Mothers, parents, bosses. You make mistakes. Leaders make mistakes. And there are different kinds of leaders, and there are certainly different kinds of mistakes. But it is a guarantee that leader will make a mistake. And they should be allowed to. And I do believe that for some, that means showing a little more grace to the person leading you. And for others, it's showing a little grace to yourself as you lead. Now, that doesn't mean there's not a mistake that a leader shouldn't make. I'm simply saying that leaders make mistakes. And I've realized, because there was a time when I was not, I was just a high school teacher, that's a lot of pressure being a pastor. High school teacher, give you assignment, better do your work. Nope, you fail. Boom. It's easy, okay? I don't care. Kids had to be there, captive audience, whatever. You're not there, I'll just tell the counselor and you'll get arrested. I don't know, something bad happened, right? (laughs) So I had no pressure. I had a job, guaranteed, very hard to fire a teacher. It's awesome. It's true, sadly. A lot of teachers should be fired, no offense, that you just can't. A lot of pressure being a pastor, though. Why? Because everyone's watching you. And everyone expects perfection. Perfect sermons, perfect theology, perfect counseling, perfect ministries, perfect marriage, perfect parenting, perfect everything. That's what they expect, even if they don't say it. I did. It's like, dude, why'd your kid's girl screwed up? What kind of pastor are you? I mean, that was what I, I just, every Sunday I hear a sermon like, mm-hmm, I wouldn't have said it that way. I mean, it's like, you're not perfect. That was me, critical man, right? Here, I, and I wrote this on Facebook recently, and it's full of a lot of perfects, but this is what I really believe. That, and you can insert husband, father if you want, any of those things, wife, mother, The pastor is simply the most imperfect one in the church. Imperfectly calling imperfect people to be perfect through confessing their own imperfection 
and accepting Christ's perfection. I fully believe that. And so leaders make mistake, but the greatness of a leader, the greatness of a leader is not measured by whether they make mistakes. It's measured by how they respond to them when they do. When they're caught, when they're discovered, when it's revealed. And the mark of a good leader, I believe, is one that can admit he makes mistakes, she makes mistakes, and leads through the consequences. Or leaves. I don't think that he should necessarily run. I don't think he should fight, because that's, I believe, often very cowardly, not tough. He leads with strength and courage by standing for the word of God. Even when doing so condemns their own actions. You leave with the word of God. And what happens a lot of times with really bad leaders is that they begin to twist what God said a little bit to justify what they did. Not a good leader. Commitment to God's word doesn't change when the situation changes. And though he humiliated, Joshua won't bring further disgrace on God or his people by breaking his word because he knows two wrongs certainly don't make a right, just make it twice as wrong. And many of us, many of us are going to be tempted to argue, but they didn't keep their commitment. The commitment wasn't valid. It doesn't count. False pretenses. And the reason we say that is because a lot of people have a pretty whacked out view of commitment. Many wrongly believe that commitment is predicated on what that other person has committed to do. When I married my bride, my commitment to her was not, I will love you and be married to you as long as you don't become like 450 pounds because that's just too much. Okay? <laughs> or if you get bad burns on your face or even if you continue to love me. I, I can't speak to you as long as breathing. And I know a lot of minds go into what if, what if, what if, what if. What if this happens? What if that happens? I know the what ifs. I've seen the what ifs. I've walked through people with the what ifs. Okay. I don't know what will happen with a what if. I hope that I will stand for the word of God in the what if. And that I will keep my commitment. Because fulfilling our promises has nothing to do with how well someone else fulfills theirs. And it's tempting to point the finger at a person or a group who failed to keep their word as an excuse not to keep ours. Very tempting. And Joshua knew that they were obligated to keep their word even if they were tricked into giving it. And this brings all kinds of questions about, okay, what is this going to teach us about how I'm supposed to live faithful in some of these really twisted situations and relationships and commitments that I made that have turned sour? I'll just ask the question. I don't have an answer. And that's also not to say that there isn't any relationship that shouldn't ever be ended, even biblically. I have counseled people that, you know what? It is more glorifying for God for you to get out of this. And that's not breaking your word. So that does happen. But I will say that God is honored and His glory is upheld by the keeping of our word. And God is not honored by our happiness or our comfort if it means breaking our word. 
And of course, I know everyone right now has their spiritual legal defense team running to their mind going, well, but I have this exception and this and this and this and this and I have a biblical right to break this promise and I'm not denying that that is true. All I'm trying to say that this passage points to is I don't want to convince you the rightness or wrongness of every promise that you necessarily kept or broken, but just that your word means something to God and that it's serious business to break it. So we conclude with what Joshua does. In verse 22, he says this, through 27, then we'll end. Joshua summoned them and said to the Gibeonites, these liars, Why did you deceive us, saying that we are from far away, or we are far from you, when you dwell among us? Now therefore you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood, drawers of water for the house of my God. And they answered Joshua, because it was told your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you had did this thing. Translating, we read the Bible and we believed it. Interesting, huh? And now, behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. And so he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel. Joshua did. And they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. So what happens to the Gibeonites? Do they get off scot-free? That's what my son Fisher likes to do when I get him when he does something wrong, and then he's like, oh, Landon's going to get off scot-free? Right? Scot-free, the Gibeonites get off scot-free, nothing happens to them? Well, not exactly. Joshua um, refuses to break the oath that they made with him, but he, that doesn't mean that keeping his word meant he didn't have the right or responsibility to dictate the terms of the relationship. Oh, I'm going to keep my word, but this is how it's going to be like. And that day the Gibeonites become servants to the congregation for the altar of the Lord. The very thing that the Gibeonites were hoping to hold on to through their sin, their freedom, is actually lost. But this is, this is just awesome. The entire chapter, especially the end though, demonstrates not only the power of sin and its consequences, but the greater power of God's grace to save in spite of our sin. Now, catch this. The godly, I say that loosely, the godly Israelites who sin, sin unintentionally, meaning they didn't intentionally not try to sin, they unintentionally sin because they believed that they could trust their sinful eyes and their sinful guts to make a godly decision apart from God, and they were wrong. And then the Gibeonites, the godless Gibeonites, sin intentionally, believing that their sin would ensure their freedom and lead to their happiness, but in fact, it led to their slavery, which is what all sin does. But through a major mistake, and through the resulting slavery, comes the means through which God ends up bringing more men closer to His glory. Isn't that crazy? The Gibeonites were made slaves, who most of which served in the courts of God the rest of their lives. 
before the altar of God, exposed to the glory of God, more so than many others. In the future, as you see the history of Israel, Gibeon, the city, becomes the actual location place for a time for the tabernacle itself. Beautiful. In other words, God is bigger than my sinful mistakes, than your sinful screw-ups, and bigger than any sin that can be or has been committed against you. And we know that because the cross of Jesus proves how in some mysterious, awesome, incredible way, God uses the sinful choices of men. He really has no other kind to use. Think about that. Right? It's like, oh, what about the non-sinful ones? Yeah, which ones are those? Right? If God purposes all things for good, then one of the things has to be evil and sin. He chooses or so he uses the sinful choices of men to bring about his plan of redemption. And you see that most boldly declared by Peter, the guy who, the leader, who made a royal mistake of denying Jesus three times in front of Jesus, swearing about it, running away in tears, and when Jesus returned, you see him boldly preaching the same thing. And there's an amazing verse in Acts 2 It says this, his first sermon, Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God and mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourself know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, God knew, God was in control, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, which I think are probably pretty sinful things. God is sovereign, God is in control. God is way bigger than I ever thought he was. And whether you are an Israelite or a Gibeonite, take your pick. The deceived or the deceiver, the perp or the victim, we all need the same thing, which is the truth. And the truth is not some advice on how to not ever be deceived again. The truth is a person named Jesus who is ready to forgive you of your screw-up and powerful enough to transform any other ones. This is not to say that it doesn't matter how we make decisions, but it is to say that there really is only one decision that matters, which is faith in Jesus. And by faith, then, we trust Jesus, we depend upon Jesus, we appeal to Jesus, we talk with Jesus, and always deny ourselves as we make decisions, Walking after Jesus, knowing that if we find ourselves in the midst of a mistake, bad decision, or a mess that we created by faith in Jesus, God can not only forgive, but he can overrule our mistakes and bring out blessings despite our sin. Incredible. Now, before we take communion, one personal story that may end up being one of those TMI, too much information, but we are a family, so I'm going to show you. I want you to leave here thinking that decisions are the focus. It doesn't matter so much the decision you're making as much as the process you're making it. Our daughter, who is uh, five, as <laughs> soon as she was born, or shortly after she was born, my wife and I decided, or made a decision, that we were done with having kids. There were a lot that went into that. It wasn't just like, all right, three's enough, oh my gosh. It was, there was a lot into that. 
we decided to have a vasectomy. I was very hesitant about it. We prayed, and we prayed, and we prayed, and we talked, and we sought counsel, and we did all these things. We committed the decision to God. And we were at peace and comfortable in making the decision. And we had a vasectomy. Four years later, we felt differently. My wife wanted to go back and go, we made this decision. It was bad, right? We screwed up. I said, no. Why do you think we screwed up? Because we were thinking about changing our minds. Why can't that decision just be part of our story? If we made that without prayer, if we made that without counsel, if we made that without ever considering God, okay, I might agree with you, but I don't feel guilty about that at all. It's part of our story. But this decision is going to cost us money, which it did, and pain, which it did. (laughs) But we prayed about it, and we prayed about it, and we prayed about it, and we made the decision to have a reversal, and now my wife is pregnant, and she'll be due in three months, and so she's sharing some of the pain as well, all right? But I don't look at both and go, oh, bad decision, good decision. I go, both decisions came about from wanting to glorify God, pursuing God, and we made them, and we moved forward. It's not the decision that matters. It's how you're coming to that decision. And are you committed to honoring God and glorify God then pray, ask for wisdom, and make a decision. And trust that God's in control regardless, even if you make the wrong one.